0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 68. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this on April 14th, 2022, in my bedroom closet in New Orleans. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is about the kidnapping and ransom of Pocahontas in 1613, the romancing of her by John Rolfe, and their marriage in 1614, which settled the First Anglo-Powhatan War. My primary source for this episode is a very interesting book written only in 2004 by Camilla Townsend, Pocahontas and the Powhatan Dilemma. Professor Townsend reads all the various accounts of Pocahontas' life skeptically, trying to imagine what she must have felt under the circumstances described by the various European men who encountered her and wrote down what they believed happened. Townsend's short book, which those of you who have stuck with our long series on Jamestown might want to read, link in the show notes and on the website, is perhaps an example of personal characteristics mattering in the writing of history. Only a few of the hundreds of books written on Jamestown come from women. In Townsend's telling, she calls for readers to stretch themselves to imagine what Pocahontas must really have felt under various circumstances described by the chroniclers of her life, including John Smith. Many of her characterizations struck me as probably true— And it occurred to me that even modern male historians reading 17th century male chroniclers of a young woman's attitude might not have understood all the layers of context as well as a female historian might. To be clear, none of this is to say that male historians cannot write thoughtfully about women in history. It will surprise nobody that I do not accept the more extreme idea that one need be a member of a particular demographic group to write about somebody in that demographic group. But neither do I think that one's background is irrelevant to the study of history. I think Townsend's book on Pocahontas is a very digestible example of history made better because the author is a woman. So give it a try and see if you agree. Townsend's rendition of the relationship between John Smith and Pocahontas, including the famous first rescue, is very interesting. And she has nudged me in the direction of believing that it was, in fact, an adoption ceremony of some sort rather than an actual rescue. You will expel a sigh of relief, however, to hear that I am not going to take you through that controversy again. Life must go on, and so must the History of the Americans podcast. Our knowledge of Pocahontas's life is captured in two periods. The first period dates from 1607 to 1609, when she was definitively a prepubescent girl. During that time, she meets John Smith. They have their various encounters, which may or may not have happened, as Smith described. She visits Jamestown regularly and probably learns a fair amount of English from young Thomas Savage and other English boys then she largely disappears from history, or at least the main chronicles. The second period runs from the spring of 1613 to her death in 1617, and that is the topic of this episode and the next. In the gap between the two periods, there are some blank spaces that we have to fill in by extrapolation from very thin references. William Strachey, one of the survivors of the sea venture wreck at Bermuda and one of Jamestown's most important chroniclers, recorded that in 1610, Pocahontas, presumably now post-pubescent, married a man called Cocoom. Cocoon, K-O-C-O-O-M in the English transliteration, was a warrior, probably in Paramount Chief Patton's personal retinue, possibly originally from the Patawomax, up the Potomac River. Notwithstanding that the English characterized Pocahontas as a princess, under the prevailing succession rules of the Powhatans, she would not have been eligible to become a chief. There were women who did, or to have given birth to one. So her marriage to another Indian would not have been politically important to her father. Kakum seems to have disappeared within a year or two of the marriage, and certainly by the spring of 1613. We do not know how or why he vanishes from the record. He was a warrior, so he might have died in combat. The two might have divorced, which was permitted in their law and tradition. Regardless, he must have been well out of the way when the pious John Rolfe raised the possibility of marrying Pocahontas in early 1614. Townsend reckons that the English, who knew of her first marriage, would not have risked the scandal of bigamy— on her marriage to Rolfe. As Townsend puts it, it seems unlikely that the evangelical pastors and scholars in Virginia who were so eager for the union would have been willing to risk its being exposed that she had a living common law Indian husband. It would have invalidated all their efforts and left them looking like fools. They who gave away their insecurities on so many issues never introduced even a subordinate clause's worth of doubt on this point. Back to me. We are also forced to consider whether Pocahontas had a child by a cocoon. It's possible that she didn't get pregnant. She was still very young, and her cycle may not have become regular. If she did get pregnant, perhaps she miscarried. The baby died soon after birth. It seems highly unlikely to Townsend, as it does to me, that the, quote, assertive, sensitive, and keenly intelligent woman whom the English later came to know was willing to leave behind a child or children and never mention their existence in any context ever again, apparently not even to her husband. One would think that we would know a lot about John Rolfe's family. We do not. Historians believe but are not certain that he was born in 1585, the son of another John Rolfe, in the village of Heacham on the Norfolk, England coast. Ralph the Elder's grave and still legible epitaph remain. Quote, He increased his property by merchandise, by exporting and importing such things as England abounded in or needed. He was of the greatest service. People today struggling with post pandemic supply chain issues surely understand what great service the import-export business indeed provides. Whether from Heacham or not, young John found his way to an education, and by age 24 had become intrigued with finding his fortune in the new world. He and his new and pregnant wife boarded the Sea Venture in June 1609, off to Virginia with a fated fleet of the Third Supply— Notwithstanding John's subsequent writings and all that was written about his marriage to Pocahontas, and notwithstanding that we know the name of her first husband, we do not know the name of Rolf's first wife. History can be random that way. As longstanding and attentive listeners well know, in late July, just as Samuel de Champlain was paddling down Lake Champlain to attack the Mohawks at Ticonderoga, a hurricane broke up the third supply. Most of the ships straggled into Jamestown a few weeks later, but the sea venture, with most of the colony's new leadership, and Mr. and Mrs. Rolfe, was presumed lost. In fact, it was run aground in Bermuda, where the survivors would remain for another nine months. That February, Mrs. Rolfe who had survived a hurricane working through the storm-tossed night with the other women to get biscuits and water to the men who were laboring at the pumps in a losing battle with the sea, gave birth to a baby girl whom the Rolfs named Bermuda, which I think is a really nice name. Bermuda would be christened on February 11th, but would live only a few days more. She stopped breathing, and they buried her in paradise. In May 1610, the Sea Venture alumni packed themselves on the two new pinnaces, the aptly named Deliverance and Patience, and set sail for Jamestown. They would arrive only ten days later, in the spring, following the starving time. As you know, the commander of the whole shebang, Thomas Gates, would size up the situation and decide to abandon Jamestown, a decision that would be reversed in only three days when Lord de la War would sail up the James with hundreds of new settlers and a lot of supplies. At some point, shortly after they arrived in Jamestown, Mrs. Rolfe died. John, who is clearly a thoughtful and reflective young man, might well have blamed himself for taking her on such a venture, pun intended, only to lose both his wife and his baby daughter. This was the time of the First Anglo-Powhatan War, which we covered in some depth last time. It had gone very poorly for the English in its first year, and if not for the miraculous arrival of de la War, who reversed the abandonment of Jamestown, Powhatan would have won. The English would go on the counteroffensive in 1610 and 1611— and by the end of the second year, the Powhatans would have been pushed off the James River and into the heart of their territory among the Pamunkey people a bit to the north on today's York River. During this time, a creative young English captain, Samuel Argyll, was operating between London and Jamestown. You will recall that he had first arrived in the early summer of 1609, having tested a shorter path across the North Atlantic. Argyll had been the first to tell John Smith that he would be demoted, even before the surviving ships of the Third Supply arrived that August. Argyll continued to move in and out of the area, sometimes on his own and sometimes at the request of the leadership at Jamestown. At one point, he traded for corn with a patawomics along the Potomac River and developed a good relationship with the chief there. In the fall of 1612, Argyll bought 1,400 bushels of corn from the Padawamics and picked up young Henry Spellman, another of the teen translators, who seems to have gone there or been sent there for his own safety. On another occasion, De Delawar sent him to Bermuda to capture some of the feral hogs there to replace those slaughtered by the Powhatans on Hog Isle during the starving time. In the spring of 1613, Argyll was again back on the Potomac, exploring with Patowmack guides and looking for valuable medicinal plants, samples of ore, and anything else that might yield a profit. Argyll heard, possibly from one of the guides, that none other than Pocahontas was in the region visiting with the Patowmacks. Maybe she was on a diplomatic mission for her father, or perhaps calling on her in-laws. Regardless, Argyll saw the great possibilities in kidnapping her. She would, presumably, make for an excellent bargaining chip in the ongoing First Anglo-Powhatan War. Argyll prevailed on the local chief, a man named Yapacis, to assist him in a ruse that would entrap Pocahontas. Yapacis did not act alone. He did not have the authority to ensnare the Padawomics in a war with the Powhatan Confederacy. So he took Argyll's proposal, which included a promise to defend the Padawomics if that war materialized, to his older brother, the top chief of the Padawomics. Argyll had correctly anticipated that the Padawomics were more afraid of him than they were of the now weakened Powhatans, and in any case were themselves chafing under demands from the Powhatans, Powhatans for tribute. The scheme was hatched. Now let's go to Professor Townsend's narrative. Quote, and his wife invited her to come and see the great English ship riding at anchor before their village. Once on the beach, the wife said she wanted to go aboard and see the inside of the vessel. Ypasas pretended to be angry with her, saying that it would be wrong for her to proceed on such a venture without any women attendants. But would Pocahontas go with her? Pocahontas was no fool. The English later reported, Now was the greatest labor to win her. Guilty, perhaps, of her father's wrongs, though not known to be supposed to go with her. These words meant that Pocahontas knew the history of European kidnappings of those unwise enough to venture into their boats— Me interjecting, she almost certainly knew, for example, the story of Don Luis. And she knew her father was at war with the English and considered by them to have committed great wrongs. Her host reminded her, however, that Argyll had no way of knowing who she was or even of recognizing a king's daughter when he saw one and that he was friendly to the Padawamics. Surely there would be no danger. She boarded. Captain Argyle gave them a tour and provided an excellent repast. He then suggested that the women take a nap in the gunner's room. Pocahontas did not sleep long on the swaying boat, if she did at all, and soon reappeared and told Ypasas that she wanted to be gone. Then Argyle pretended to tell Ypasas for the first time that he was taking Powhatan's daughter prisoner to be offered in exchange for the English men and weapons that the chief held. He told him to send Powhatan a message to that effect immediately. Argo waited where he was for the messenger sent to Powhatan to return. He came without delay. It would have taken between 24 and 48 hours for the runners and rowers to do their job. He said that Powhatan was deeply grieved, that he desired the English to use his daughter well. They should bring their ship into his river, and he would give them what they demanded in exchange for her. Satisfied, on April 13th, Argyle drew anchor and went straight to Jamestown to bring his prisoner of war to Sir Thomas Gates. Back to me. It had been years since Pocahontas had been to Jamestown. It was still laid out, as she remembered from her days teaching the English boys how to cartwheel with three muddy triangular streets lined with houses and other buildings— The architecture would have changed. The English had adopted Indian materials, which were cooler in summer and warmer in winter. But the people were almost all different. Only one of her friends from years before remained. She must have been terrified, even if she was smart enough to pretend otherwise. The English crowded around her. We know this because several of them wrote letters home describing the moment. We do not know whether any of them were sympathetic. We do know that John Rolfe, who within a year would be her husband, was not there. He was 55 miles upriver at Henrico, the fort built to close off the, quote, Western door to the Powhatan Confederacy's territory. Henrico was in a much healthier setting than swampy Jamestown, so that was where the English families had gone. Gates relied heavily on his second-in-command, Thomas Dale, and assigned the responsibility for Pocahontas to him. Dale had featured prominently in the English counter-offensives of 1610 and 1611, and had been leading the sort of Cold War that had prevailed since the Powhatans had retreated to live with the Pamunkeys at the end of that year. Dale decided to send Pocahontas up to Henrico, which was a far more hospitable environment and at least as safe from a Powhatan rescue operation if one were to be attempted as Jamestown. Dale assigned Pocahontas to the Reverend Alexander Whitaker, who had established a church at Henrico. Whitaker had no wife, but he did have English servants who maintained his household. At least one was a woman, and she took Pocahontas under her wing. Longstanding and attentive listeners will recall that the Virginia Company was keenly interested in converting Indians to the Anglican Church. The clergy had been preaching the importance of saving souls as a reason to invest in or go to Virginia. The evangelical mission was not cynical. These men believed not only that spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ was their bounden duty, but they were helping heathen Indians as they did so. The English clergy even had a justifying historical narrative that was, curiously to our modern sensibilities, not racist. Learned Englishmen believed that the Indians of North America were analogous to the ancient Britons before the Romans and then the Christians came. They were as smart as anybody, but like those ancient Britons, merely unexposed to the eye-opening wonders of the gospel and the other glories of civilization. Six hard Virginia years along, however, the English had given up on converting adult Indians. The question had been raised many times in many contexts, and the Indians preferred their own ways. The Virginia Company eventually concluded that conversion would have to begin with the children. Get to them when they're young, and some of them will believe your religion forever. This idea persists even to this day, Today's religious and even political activists understand that the immature mind is easily shaped into a lifetime ideology, which explains why school curricula have become such a flashpoint in American politics. Such people are walking in the footsteps of the Virginia Company. In this context, the conversion and resulting salvation of Pocahontas would be a huge accomplishment, a spiritual and propaganda victory all at once. The Reverend Whitaker, who had actually written a tract called Good News from Virginia, which argued for the conversion of the Indians to rescue them from spiritual poverty, now found himself in charge of Pocahontas, whose conversion would be a great feather in his cap. I crack me up. Whitaker went to work educating Pocahontas. He engaged her in long conversations and taught her to read his Bible. His working assumption was that she was quick, like the ancient Britons. And she was. One wonders whether she challenged him on the behavior of the English. If she did, Whitaker probably would have conceded that a lot of them were dirtbags. He'd written public statements condemning the behavior of the English settlers at Jamestown himself, calling them murderers, thieves, and adulterers. The last because many of them slept with Indian women when they had wives at home. Now let's go to Professor Townsend's description of Pocahontas's life at Henrico. Quote, At the end of each week, Pocahontas was relieved somewhat from her tete-a-tetes with the intense Whitaker. But she then had to face the English in large groups, and increasingly was expected to perform for them by conversing and reciting what she knew— on Saturday evenings, the nearby colonists gathered for prayer at the plantation of Sir Thomas Dale, just a few miles downriver from Enrico. On Sundays, Whitaker and his household spent the day in the town itself, so he could preach in the morning and teach a catechism class in the afternoon. These would have been the occasions when Pocahontas and the 28-year-old widowed John Rolfe met and talked. John Smith would later assert that Rolfe had been one of those who helped with Pocahontas' English lessons. Perhaps. Regardless, by the end of that winter, John Rolfe would write that Pocahontas was she to whom my heart and best thoughts are and have been a long time, so entangled and enthralled in so intricate a labyrinth that I was even weary to unwind myself thereout. John was in love and had been for many months. He eventually covered both sides of four sheets of fool's cap paper, pouring out the history of his love in a letter to Sir Thomas Dale, whose permission he needed if he was to ask Pocahontas to marry him. It was a remarkable document, written in the heat of passion, when, according to the writer himself, Pocahontas was still staunchly unconverted. Back to me— Rolf had a crush so bad it hurt, like that last one you had when you couldn't think of anyone or anything else. John went to Jamestown for a while, hoping the distance would get his feelings under control. It didn't. He read the Bible, concerned for the souls of their future children if he married Pocahontas without her converting. That issue was resolved with a writing of John Calvin, who said that the children of Christians, or accounted holy, yet they be the issue of but one parent faithful. We do not know the extent to which Pocahontas returned Rolf's love. She did not pour her feelings out, either in writing or to witnesses who wrote them down in documents that survive. Professor Townsend, however, picks apart the facts that we do know and builds a speculative case that makes sense to me. Pocahontas eventually said that she loved John Rolfe. She converted to Christianity, even though the pious Rolfe had seemingly decided that if she didn't, he still wanted to be the father of her children. And of course, she married him and they had a son, Thomas, from whom roughly 100,000 Americans and Britons descend. The question is, why did Pocahontas do these things? For a long time, the British American mythology asserted that she had long adored white men, English culture, and the Christian God. The romantic versions of her rescue and relationship with John Smith, with a foundation of that idea, and her subsequent religious and cultural conversion and marriage to Rolf, with a prima facie evidence in its favor. There were huge gaps in this telling, including that she remained loyal to her father and stayed away from the English after John Smith's departure in 1609 until her kidnapping in 1613. For these and more ideological reasons, the traditional view has not surprisingly fallen far out of favor in the last 50 or 60 years, and the pendulum swung hard to the other side. As modern historians came to see only exploitation in the European settlement of North America, they saw Pocahontas exclusively as a prisoner and a hostage. Her conversion and marriage is fundamentally coercive. In this telling, Pocahontas was at best a victim of Stockholm Syndrome. Professor Townsend argues persuasively for a middle position, and that one makes a lot more sense to me. Considerable evidence, Townsend argues, suggests that Pocahontas retained a genuine agency, notwithstanding her captivity. While Pocahontas had been a hostage for over a year when she married John Rolfe, she clearly retained some control over what happened to her. Certain facts make this evident. First, after two of her brothers later spoke to her alone, her father decided to send three male relatives to her marriage ceremony. He would not have done so if she were being forced to wed. Second, John Rolfe gives no evidence of having been that rare, brutal kind of man who would want to force a woman who disliked him into marriage. He might well have had sexual fantasies about such a woman, but unless a transfer of wealth is involved, the unexceptional man does not promise to spend his life with a woman who says from the outset that she has no interest in him. And finally, after the marriage, Pocahontas appeared so happy that the Virginia Company officials wanted to bring her to London to show her off. Advertisers do not want models who are working at gunpoint who feel violated and demonstrate no interest in what they are purportedly promoting. It is clear that Pocahontas was doing, at least to some extent, what she wanted to do. Why? Why would an Algonquin noblewoman who had lived happily among her people want to throw over what she knew and cross into another world? Well, for starters, she was keenly intelligent and had been living with the English long enough to have begun to grasp the resources which they had at their disposal. If her people were to survive, they needed the English as allies, not as enemies. How did an Algonquin noblewoman build an alliance? In a time-honored custom, she married with the enemy and bore children who owed allegiance to both sides. Later in her imprisonment, Pocahontas' father sent a message that she should remain with the English as part of Thomas Dale's family. Powhatan quickly and easily gave his approval that she should marry Rolf. Clearly, father and daughter were thinking alike. Back to me again. Of course, without the context of the ongoing existential struggle between the English and the Powhatans, there would have been no opportunity for a peacemaking marriage. Outside of that context, would Pocahontas have married Rolf? It's impossible to imagine how that would have happened. But it is also not hard to imagine that within that context, Pocahontas might have regarded Rolf as a good choice. As Townsend wrote, Rolf was a good catch the equivalent of a capable hunter and strong warrior. Quote, Rolf was a well-dressed gentleman, a favorite of Dale's and Whitaker's. He read from their ceremonial tome, and servants listened to him. He loved her and was willing to defend his love for her before a hostile community. She let her preferences show. Rolf believed she loved him back. Her feelings, whatever they were, should not be dismissed or taken for granted. They were undoubtedly complicated. Rolfe eagerly promised her many things. If Pocahontas, like John Rolfe, was in part simply lonely and seeking to find a way out of a present predicament, that fact did not make her affection for him any less real than his was for her, or in any way invalidate their feelings. Deep love can be born in just such circumstances— Pocahontas may have loved John Rolfe. If so, it was not because she was dazzled by his English ways, but rather because she wanted to, because he answered her needs as they were then. She alone knew what she saw in him. This sounds right to me. And I'll add this. The English regarded Pocahontas as a princess and by this time treated her respectfully, even as they held her hostage in war. In English thinking, this gave her status that she would not even have had among her own people, insofar as she was not actually in the line of Powhatan succession. Objections to Rolfe marrying her had to do with her failure to convert, not with fundamental disrespect. It might have been flattering. In any case, those objections fell away when she converted. The catalyzing moment came in March 1614. Governor Gates departed for England, and Thomas Dale, the warrior, was now entirely in charge. Samuel Argel gave him the use of his frigate, treasurer, and with 150 men and the not-yet-betrothed Rolf and Pocahontas, Dale sailed up the Pamunkey River, today's York River, to confront Powhatan and again demand the long-promised and never-delivered ransom. The paramount chief was not there— but his war chief, Opa confronted the English with hundreds of warriors. A tense standoff ensued. Pocahontas came to shore, now wearing her English clothes. Two of her half-brothers rejoiced to see her alive and well-treated. She spoke with them, and only to them. She was not amused and communicated her irritation that Powhatan had not ransomed her. Extended negotiations followed with Pocahontas' brothers coming aboard the ship as hostages against the lives of English emissaries. The standoff ended with Dale's decision to permit Rolf and Pocahontas to marry. But acting on Powhatan's direction, permitted the marriage. Dale knew that he had accomplished one of the Virginia Company's great objectives. The first Anglo-Powhatan War came to an end, and so began eight years of peace and something of a golden age for the English on the James, even if not for the local indigenous people. The first week in April 1614 was an astonishing whirlwind. Pocahontas declared herself a Christian and the Reverend Whitaker baptized her with the name Rebecca. Townsend plausibly imagines that Whitaker had the biblical Rebecca in mind. By Isaac, she conceived twins, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. In the Bible, the first of Rebecca's twins came out red. Townsend expands on the analogy, but this episode's getting a bit long, so I'll send you back to her book for more if you're that interested. Now to Townsend for her account of the wedding. Quote, On April 5th, Pocahontas married John. She stood before the pastor in fine clothes made of fabric brought from England and responded to the words in English. Marriage. Marriage is what us together today. At this point, you had to know that was coming. Back to Townsend. John promised only to love, honor, and keep her. She also promised to obey and serve. Wilt thou have this man as thy wedded husband to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? The pastor asked. Wilt thou obey him and serve him? Love, honor, and keep him, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other, keep thee only unto him, so long as you both shall live. She answered, as had been rehearsed, I will. Then the minister asked, Who giveth this woman to be married unto this man? Opakisko, an old uncle of hers, was there as a senior male in her family, to represent her father, according to her people's custom, and to give her away as the English saw it. Two of her brothers stood with him as well. The other guests were all English. There it was, the most famous marriage in all early America. John Philip Sousa even composed a march in their honor, Powhatan's Daughter March, which we will play at the end of this episode in lieu of the usual clip from Yankee Doodle. The newlyweds set up a household on land of Rolfs on Hog Island, where only four years before, during the starving time, the Powhatans had slaughtered hundreds of pigs kept there. Rolf had already begun his experiments with tobacco, grown from seeds obtained by some illegal means from the Spanish West Indies. By 1616, he had his first crop, but still it wasn't competitive with the Spanish smoke that had become so popular in England. Ralph's most important innovation was yet to come. He had tried curing the leaves by leaving them out in the sun, but that did not yield the flavor he needed to compete. Then he adopted the more time consuming Indian method of hanging them, leaf by leaf, on a rack. Historians have speculated that Pocahontas taught him to do this, and that seems as plausible as any other theory. In 1617, Rolfe and other tobacco farmers exported 20,000 pounds of tobacco to England, and in 1618, 40,000 pounds. Rolfe broke the Spanish monopoly. Within a decade, Virginia's tobacco exports to England would exceed half a million pounds per year, and the Virginia Company's colonies would finally be profitable by a means nobody had anticipated On January 30th, 1615, a comfortable 300 days after their marriage, Rebecca and John gave birth to a son, whom they baptized Thomas. Against the odds, he would live a long life and have a lot of children. And it is from him that today's 100,000 descendants claim lineage to Pocahontas and John Rolfe. Neither of his parents would live to know any of their grandchildren. At some point in late 1615 or early 1616, Rolf came home with news, perhaps a question. The Virginia company's leaders had asked the Rolfs to go to London. Their family was a triumph for the company, and the directors wanted to show them off. Would Rebecca cross the ocean? She would do, and that story will be the subject of the next episode. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And now, John Philip Seuss's Powhatan's Daughter March, composed in 1907 to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the establishment of Jamestown. The idea for this was sent to me by one of my listeners, and I lost the damn communication that told me who it was. So thank you very much. Keep it coming, and I apologize for my inability to give you credit. Until next time.